Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Well, outdoor dining in New York City and other areas generally was deemed, I believe, a success. Uh, uh, you know, I guess a Band-Aid on a very difficult wound there for restaurant owners. But as we head into the autumn and then the winter, you have to think about indoor dining. How is that going to work in New York and in other markets? To get a sense of that, we welcome Kate Crater, food editor for Bloomberg Pursuits. Kate, some really interesting stories on the Bloomberg recently. Uh, I guess one that caught our eye, Lebrunadin, will be New York's first three-star dining room to reopen. So I guess they're going to give it a try. What are most restaurants, how are they thinking about it? I think uh, most restaurants are excited to be back. And so many of them have done such a terrific job with outdoor dining here in New York City. Um, but a lot of them have just waiting, holding their cards for indoor dining. And then Governor Cuomo announced it in a place like La Berna Den that had not been open, that wasn't doing takeout jumped and was like, you know what, it's going to be a risk no matter when we do it. And so now's the time. So September 30th, they'll be reopening. Well, so interestingly, with Le Bernardin, they obviously have a huge amount of resources. It's a huge airy space. And mm-hmm. people were probably socially distant in there even before COVID, given the amount of space. It's, it's in midtown Manhattan. They will be able to potentially make a little bit of money or at least cover their overheads. But what about smaller or clo- more closely uh, fitted restaurants. I mean, it's going to be such a challenge. I know you talked to Amanda Cohen from Dirt Candy, whose restaurant is tiny, who would maybe at 25% have six guests, eight guests, and those numbers just don't work. I think Eric Repair, like you said, has resources. He got PPP money and was able to say, even in the best case, we'll break even and we're willing to take a loss, but they all, everybody's betting that it's going to go up to 50% in the near future. Governor Cuomo hinted that it might happen as soon as November 1st, which can't come soon enough for a lot of these places. <laughs> so Kate, how did, how did some of the restaurants that really did make the investment in outdoor dining, um, you know, you drive, I've been in the city a few times and, and even out here in New, New, New Jersey, we've seen people get really creative on how they outfit space. And now I'm starting to see more of the space eaters popping up. How, how did those restaurants do, do you think, in hindsight? Um, I I mean, I think a lot of them have sort of gotten into the moment and engaged. And and also a lot of them have a hospitality gene and they like to serve people and they want to see customers and faces and cook, you know, chefs like Tom Colicchio. They want to cook. You know, they're not (laughs) they're not like lobbyists. They don't want to spend their time in Washington. So I think for a lot of them, you know, until as as the numbers start to shake out and then we'll start to see, I think, more and more closings, which is going to be hard. But right now, I think a lot of them are engaged and going day to day. The PPP money, obviously, it's coming to an end at the end of the month and there's no word on whether there's going to be an extension. As of right now, it looks like there isn't going to be. So what about the restaurants that took PPP money that now don't feel like they can reopen? Do they have to pay that back in full? Um, They do. Well, they have to pay back. It's the loans, the terms of the loans are actually pretty good. I think it's 1% um, that you have a year to to pay back. So in terms of in terms of taking money and, and, you know, making having an investment in your restaurant, it wasn't the worst deal to make. But 
a lot of them, I mean, the best case scenario is, is if they can follow the guidelines and not have to pay it back at all. And then that just becomes money that, like for Eric Repair at La Berna Den, fuels their reopening. So, Kate, do we know how many restaurants have closed in New York or are expected to close? Have we heard any reliable data on that? There's, um, no, everybody, I, I mean, there's a lot of like scary numbers. I think Open Table had um, an 80% number that might close. That was nationwide. And New York has been really hard hit because a lot of these restaurants are small and the signs aren't, aren't great for them reopening given current guidelines. But there's no, we, we haven't seen numbers that we really trust yet. What are restaurants, the smaller ones in particular, putting money into in order to try to keep going? What's the design you know, cost that they're spending and, and, and what are they spending mostly on? They've been, well, you know what, a lot of them have been really, they've they've figured out like fun ways to make money, like meal kits and takeout. A lot of them have pivoted to meal kits. I'm actually betting that a lot of them also like bars will become sort of private dining rooms. So Amanda Cohen, for instance, could, you could buy out her restaurant with 10 of your friends or whatever the mandated group is. And then it becomes something that's viable for her, viable for you and your friends and then you feel safe when you're there and that's also bars are going to be really hard hit right now especially in New York City because you don't go to a bar for it to be empty (laughs) you know you go to a bar for it to be sort of crowded and fun and um, so I think a lot of bars are going to rely on a model like um, buyouts having like a group of friends buy it out and then that hopefully will be economically sustainable for them. So it's interesting, Kate. I mean, I guess the next several months are going to be critical here as we pivot to the cooler months. Um, how much longer can outdoor dining really go, do you think? <laughs> that's the, that's the what, $120 billion question. Right. But I think um, I've talked to, like, there's a lot of enterprising chefs and restaurateurs, and someone was like, I'm going to go full Game of Thrones. You know, I'm going to have, like, sterilized furs and wraps and we'll figure out some really good heating lamps and I found that engaging I I feel like I'm in like I'll put on my down jacket and go eat outside and feel like I'm in Game of Thrones totally (laughs) (laughs) as long as the cast is there as well Kate (laughs) thank you so much always fun and very informative Kate Crater is food editor for Bloomberg Pursuits and uh, her recent story what the future of restaurants might look like has some terrifying data in there but also some uh, some great pointers for restaurants and people who might want to eat in them It is time for Bloomberg Opinion. We are joined today by Noah Feldman, professor of law at Harvard University. Uh, Professor is also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist from Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, Professor, thanks so much for joining us here. I want to go to your one of your most recent comments. A new justice won't win Trump an election verdict. Talk to us about that, because it seems like if Trump gets his another appointment on there, it will be six to three conservative versus uh, perhaps more liberal um, how does that play out? How does the math work? Well, first of all, it's important to say that that could happen. You might get all of the Republican appointees lining up with the president. But until now, Chief Justice John Roberts has been signaling like crazy that he does not want the court to be seen as a partisan body. And I don't think he would be on board, which means that without a new appointment, it could well be five to four. You know, without, with Justice Ginsburg still having been alive, it could have been five to four with Chief Justice Roberts crossing the aisle. The point is that right now, a new justice might actually not go along with the other Republicans. Imagine a new justice who's just been named by Trump 
that person's reputation would be ruined, not just for today or tomorrow, but for 20 or 30 years if she decided to vote in order to give the presidency to Trump in a closely contested case. So she might act differently. Or other Republican-nominated justices might also cross the line. So my point is just that we don't have a guarantee. Yeah, I mean, what about the idea of court packing? Because if the conservative justice were to fear that, that might also sort of play into it. There's a whole lot of game theory going on here, isn't there, Noah? There absolutely is. You know, imagine that we get a Republican nominee confirmed right now before the election, and then um, in a close vote gives the election to the president. Democrats are going to be enraged, not just for a day or two, but Democrats are going to be enraged for four years. And the call to pack the court is going to become almost impossible for a Democratic majority to stop. You know, many people, including Joe Biden, have said they don't like court packing. What court packing would need to become mainstream would be four more years of Donald Trump. That would really change, I think, almost everybody's mind if the Supreme Court gave the election to Trump. So I think some of the justices who care a lot about the court might be worried about producing that outcome. So, Noah, it it looks like uh, we're going to get a vote on uh, a replacement for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, you know, before the election. We're going to get an appointment here. How do you what do you think the ramifications are of that first? You know, some Democrats are going to turn out and vote more aggressively for Donald against Donald Trump as a consequence. But there's also going to be part of Trump's base that sees this as a major accomplishment. There are many Republicans who voted for him just because of what he would do for the Supreme Court. And some of those people are also going to turn up. So it's not at all clear that it helps or hurts Trump. And from Trump's perspective, he also can't take the risk, probably, of not choosing somebody because then his base might, might become frustrated or angry with him. So we don't really know what, what it's going to mean in, that term, ter, in those terms. What we do know is that it's going to create a new norm in the United States, that if you're the president from one party and the Senate is from the same party, you're going to choose justices. And if there's any split between those things, you're not going to be able to pick any justices. That's the new world that we're going to be entering. What about the tenor of the court just more generally? I mean, we definitely have had some non typical or maybe unexpected decisions from the likes of Justice Roberts and others, you know, that you would have assumed would vote one way and then they arrive in the court and they vote another in recent years. It's a super important point that you're making. We have to remember that even people who look extremely conservative, Chief Justice Roberts or Justice Neil Gorsuch, who is put on the court by Donald Trump, have come up with some surprisingly liberal outcomes, not because they're liberal, but because they're jurisprudence in those cases pushed to a liberal outcome. So, you know, this past July, we got a vast expansion in the rights of LGBTQ people from Justice Gorsuch, joined by Justice Roberts. So even though we're about to get a very conservative nominee, in my opinion, somebody more conservative than Roberts or Gorsuch, nevertheless, you can't predict for certain that forever that person will always line up with the conservatives. There is always some element of unpredictability in it. So, Professor, what do we know about some of the leading candidates uh, for this vacant spot? The leading candidate, I think, by pretty much all accounts, is Judge Amy Coney Barrett, who is a judge on the Seventh Circuit, one of the appeals courts in the United States. And she uh, previously was a professor for many years at the Notre Dame Law School. She's incredibly smart. I clerked at the same time as she clerked at the Supreme Court. She worked for Justice Scalia. I worked for Justice Souter by all accounts, everyone agreed, was maybe the smartest or one of the two smartest lawyers in our entire group. (laughs) Um, Very, very well thought of and extremely conservative. Um, Openly so. It's not, you know, I'm not saying anything negative about her. She would own that that description. 
So, you know, she seems overwhelmingly likely to be the pick because she's eminently qualified and her uh, perspective matches that of many of Trump's voters. I would add that she was involved in a confrontation with um, Senator Dianne Feinstein when she was up for nomination in which Dianne Feinstein used kind of um, anti what I would call, and did call at the time in Bloomberg, anti-Catholic language to question her about her religious beliefs. And that further galvanized support for mm. Judge Barrett among conservatives. So I would say that backfired very badly for Senator Feinstein. Noah, just briefly, is it true that as the country wishes, so the Supreme Court goes, it does seem to have been that way over the past number of years? Sometimes the Supreme Court, as they say, follows the election returns, but not always. You know, there, are, there have been moments in our history where the court got way out ahead of what the public wanted. Um, an example would be Citizens United, the, the Supreme Court opinion that says that corporations have free speech and that they can spend essentially unlimited amounts of money on uh, candidates. Most people in the public, according to polls, don't like that outcome, but it's still out there. Um, on the other hand, as the public became more in favor of gay rights, the court started delivering constitutional and statutory decisions on gay rights. Yep. So, you know, you can't, you can't absolutely make a rule. Sometimes the court is with, sometimes it's out ahead. Right. Noah Feldman, thank you so much for joining us once again. Fascinating discussion. We will keep a close eye on this. Noah Feldman, professor of law at Harvard University, also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. You can read his work at Bloomberg.com slash opinion or O-P-I-N. Go on the terminal. Fascinating work coming out of our Bloomberg Opinion folks. And interesting, it's going to be very uh, interesting to watch, I think, Vani, just kind of not only kind of the appointment, the voting, the vetting, uh, the the hearings uh, for the Supreme Court nominee once again. Again, highly contentious. It's always fascinating. I mean, just think back to the Kavanaugh hearings, uh, you know, it was just really fascinating to watch. But isn't it a small world, Paul, when, you know, we're speaking with Noah Feldman, who literally clerked at the same time as the top (laughs) contender for the post right now. It really is just a very, you know, not small, but very rare world. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting, and uh, you know, so he, uh, Professor Feldman, obviously has a great read on this potential uh, Supreme Court nominee, and uh, uh, I think my takeaway was uh, two things. You know, obviously very qualified as you would would expect, uh, but also uh, very conservative, and uh, I guess you would expect that as well. Uh, so we'll see how the vetting process and the you know the hearing and the you know the testimony and so on and so forth how that plays out over the next several weeks. Again, President Trump would like to get. Uh, this nominee, uh, uh, you know, put forward and, and kind of on the court by election day. I do think it's important to read editorials like Noah's, though a new justice won't win Trump an election verdict is his, his editorial today, because there are so many factors that go into these things. And to tease out all the elements is really important. It's I think it's it's so important not to just jump to an initial conclusion from an initial reading of something. Dr. Anthony Fauci still believes that we could be back to relative normalcy in America by the end of 2021. The head of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases spoke with Carlisle co-founder David Rubenstein at the Bloomberg Equality Summit, and they discussed how the U.S. will ensure it is distributed fairly throughout the population. Now, there's a concern in the minority community, I believe, that when the vaccine is available, wealthy white people will get it first and then it will trickle down, and the last people to get it will be minorities who might need it better or more than, than wealthy white people. What can you do to assure people that people of minority backgrounds will be getting this in the same fair way that it should be distributed? Well, there will be a prioritization. I mean, classically, notwithstanding COVID-19, whenever there is a shortage of vaccine in the sense 
of when you're rolling it out and you don't have all the doses. Classically, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices advises the CDC who makes that determination about what prioritization is going to be done. We're complementing that with another group from the National Academy of Medicine, which has recently met to also give a recommendation. We don't know exactly what the decision is going to be, but I can tell you, David, from past experience, clearly people who can benefit from the vaccine the most and those who are at the highest risk of serious complications will be in the higher priority. Almost certainly, the first priority will be the frontline workers, the people such as the healthcare providers who put themselves at risk. But close behind them will very likely be people who could benefit the most, and almost certainly that would include minorities. The vaccine has become a political football, with President Trump pushing for a vaccine pre-election. Our next guest, Riley Griffin of Bloomberg Healthcare Reporters, here to tell us the Trump administration is going overdrive to make that happen. Again, we just heard from Dr. Fauci with uh, David Rubenstein uh, with those interesting comments. Uh, so interesting. Riley, what do you take from what we just heard from Dr. Fauci as he was speaking with David Rubenstein? I think that's fairly consistent with, with what we've been hearing previously, which is that frontline workers, those who are in healthcare facilities, and those who are on the ground doing day-to-day jobs where they can't work from home are certainly going to receive prioritization. Next, you're going to want to consider at-risk communities. But one major concern here is an increasing and budding sense of vaccine hesitancy among broad Americans as this game of political football, as you say, um, creates an additional set of doubts surrounding the vaccine's efficacy. So explain that a little bit more. Is this across groups and across the country, or is it in particular demographics and in particular communities? We're still learning more about their distribution plans, so that's all subject to to change. But the idea would be that communities that are at risk, um, Black Americans, Hispanics, and so forth, might get prioritization. But again, we don't know this yet. We have yet to see a vaccine receive an emergency use approval. Vaccine makers are still in late-stage studies. We actually saw Johnson & Johnson launch its Phase 3 trial just today in 60,000 patients. So all of this is going to depend on the data. And as soon as we have a positive readout, the Trump administration suggests that within 24 hours of clearance by U.S. regulators, those vaccines, which have been manufactured at risk amid the clinical trial process, will be deployed to administration sites so we can really get this going. Riley, do we even know how the decision or is going to be made or who is going to make it in terms of who gets the vaccine first? Is it simply a FDA type of decision or does can it become politicized by having some involvement by the White House or other uh, political entities? So this is certainly a team effort. What we have right now is a a cohort called Operation Warp Speed, which brings together the Department of Health and Human Services, its sub-health federal agencies, um, as well as the Department of Defense, which brings to it a logistics expertise. And they are determining these these, uh, strategies together with the CDC, and that's quite critical. Something my colleagues and I have reported today, um, actually, Santazi and Shira Stein and I, is that the Trump administration has shifted billions of dollars previously allocated to public health programs 
into its Operation Warp Speed vaccine push, which reflects the U.S. government's increasing focus on a medical solution to ease the COVID-19 pandemic. But simultaneously, our reporting raises um, questions about how transparent the effort is being in terms of disclosing the funding it's received, as well as the money it's deploying to vaccine makers. And that has taken some money away from PPP equipment and masks and so on as well, according to the story. Riley, talk to us about Johnson & Johnson. It's now entering the last stage in its trials. Is is this particularly because we had the story on Pfizer yesterday? Do they really want to jump in there? They've been planning for a September start date for its phase three clinical trials for quite some time, really pushing um, their clinical trials to the test in terms of acceleration. So what we know from today is they've launched the 60,000-person final stage study. It's one of the largest to date. And that's bringing it into the fold of only a handful of frontrunners conducting trials in the U.S. in hopes of bringing a shot to market to quell the pandemic. Um, the important date to keep in mind here is that the company expects to be able to approach U.S. regulators with an emergency use authorization in the beginning of 2021, contingent on good data. And we'll have answers as to whether or not this is safe and effective as soon as by the end of the year. And, Ronnie, one thing I want to share with you that makes this candidate so different from Moderna's and Pfizer's and AstraZeneca's is that J&J is taking a one-dose shot approach, which is different from those other, other front runners, which have a, a two-dose vaccine regimen. It also doesn't need uber-cold storage facilities to be able to maintain the vaccine um, and generated a strong immune response in early studies in only 15 days. So if you talk to J&J and their chief medical officer like I did just this morning, what you'll hear from them is they think they're differentiated in that they're going to have a vaccine that's more easily distributed globally to healthcare facilities with limited infrastructure um, and can get that immune response quickly. But again, wow. all eyes are on this data. Um, we need them all, I feel like. We need all the vaccines. <laughs> yeah, Riley, just Riley, just in the last 20 seconds here, is it going to be like a cocktail approach, or is it going to be one winner-take-all? So what J&J is suggesting right now is that they're going to take a one-dose-shot approach. Um, I think that this is a really important question, though, because if you're a patient and you get a, a one of the first vaccines that's mildly efficacious, you may want another candidate down the road. Um, we don't yet know how these vaccines interact with one another as they're being tried in very stringent um, studies solo. So right. I'll have more to you on that question in six months. <laughs> right. Um, for now, we're well, Riley. We're going to need a little sooner than that. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> We're all hoping. Fingers crossed. Yep. All right, Riley. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Riley uh, Griffin, Bloomberg Healthcare reporter. All right. It is time now to continue our look at this market, which could be a head scratcher if you weren't following the narratives that we just spoke about with Sarah Ponzak. Somebody who very likely is following all those narratives is Hugh Johnson, chairman and CIO of Hugh Johnson Advisors. Hugh, we're seeing another down day for the Nasdaq. And of course, this idea that the rotation to cyclicals is overtaking the narrative again. Does this last? Is this a lasting narrative? It's a lasting narrative from this point of view is that we've you know, we've come very far very fast. I think you know that in this market since uh, the late March, and we've gotten to a level uh, that was very overvalued, 21% overvalued in my judgment, and now we're still overvalued 
15% overvalued. So we are getting sort of a give back or a decline. Let's call it a correction in what I think is an ongoing bull market. The perception also is, Vonnie, that we're going to get in the future, uh, and I mean 2021, we're going to get a spreading out of the growth in earnings. And when we start to get that, where it's not limited to so few stocks, you're going to start to see um, you're going to start to see broader performance in the S&P 500. It won't be limited. It'll be broader, and consumer cyclicals or consumer discretionary stocks will be at the top of that list. That's very consistent what we've seen in uh, previous bull markets or in history. So things are going to broaden out, which in my judgment is, is, a, is a good thing. But right now, we're still pricey or overvalued. We have to come down to levels that make more sense. We're in the process of doing that. Hugh, how do you view uh, valuation here? Are you a price-to-earnings type person and looking at the P-E ratio of the market and of sectors relative to historical levels, or how else do you think about valuation here, given that rates are so low? Price earnings ratios are key, and the key to price earnings ratios is just as you say or imply is is interest rates and right now, when we take a look at what we expect for inflation one point one percent two thousand twenty maybe two percent in two thousand twenty uh, twenty two that means the Federal Reserve is not going to change rates before two thousand say twenty three Rates are going to stay low. Returns from fixed income are going to be just uninspiring, and that's a kind way of saying it, between (laughs) now and 2023. The level of rates that we're looking at, therefore, can be supportive of price-earnings ratios around current levels. Now, current levels, in my judgment, would mean 20, but we're up at 24 right now, which is a problem. In other words, rates are supportive of of price-earnings ratios that are below current levels, not at current levels, and that's why we need this correction. So you're absolutely right. It's rates, it's price-earnings ratios, and they, they, the, the price-earnings ratio has to come down to be consistent with the level of rates. So we're pricey, overvalued, however you want to say it. I love how you put this. You tell investors to, to maintain a meaningful exposure to equities, but also maintain a meaningful cash position to support lifestyles for at least six months to a year. Right. What are you anticipating and, and what, what's a meaningful cash position? Yeah, that's a great question. It, it all depends on the person and exactly what they what they need. In my judgment, that means six months of essentially of living expenses. Some would say that's not enough. It has to be maybe a year of living expenses. But given the risks in this market, Vonnie, I think what we're talking about is is yes, I think you have to maintain a meaningful allocation to equities because I think it's a bull market. We're talking about a correction in a bull market, but at the same time, given the level of risks, particularly the level of risk with a sort of second wave and we start to sort of roll back some of the reopenings, I think what you have to do is you have to have a meaningful defensive position or cash position six months to a year of your living expenses. So, Hugh, I know, uh, again, a long-term bull market only game in town. Are you, how about some of your clients who, again, are looking for yield? Do you suggest that they, they look to perhaps some riskier asset classes, perhaps emerging markets? Yeah, you kind of have to do both. You have to kind of have a little bit of if you're pretty price sensitive. And, again, with the risk being high and price sensitive, you should have a little defense. And, again, that means buying stocks like 
I mentioned Verizon. I, 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 there are plenty others that have attractive dividend yields and will give you good defense if the market does go down further, as I, as I expect. At the same time, let's keep in mind that this is a correction and maybe a stiff one in an ongoing bull market. So you want to be sort of half position for defense and half position for the bull market. And that means really buying some of those stocks that will do well in a bull market, things like Facebook, um, MasterCard. Uh, NVIDIA, Apple, you you know what they are. So you have to have some of that in your portfolio as well and take a hard look. at If you're looking at international, uh, I would still underweight international, but emerging is going to be better than developed. Hugh Johnson, thank you so much for joining us. As always, Hugh Johnson, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer of Hugh Johnson Advisors, uh, giving us his thoughts on the market. Again, Vonnie, given where interest rates are and given what we're hearing out of the Federal Reserve, looks like rates are going to be lower for longer. Kind of pushes investors, valuations uh, notwithstanding, into equities. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why you get these sort of bouts of massive gains in equities. It's just people desperately looking for something to do. And at the yeah, same time, absolutely. you know, the yeah, stock absolutely. market's Take not going on- down. Yeah, taking on more risk, maybe, you know, going down the risk curve in terms of the credit as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.